Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Syndicate Podcast. Today we've got Joey Krug on the line. Joey's been busy. Joey, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, just to kick things off. Sure. So my background is I started a project called Augur on Ethereum. And what Augur is, it's a prediction market platform. So the idea is Bitcoin gave us decentralized money, but there isn't really any decentralized financial system to participate in. And so the idea with Augur is people can create prediction markets on essentially anything, basically allowing them to speculate on generalized derivatives contracts. So anything from, you know, who will become president in 2020 to what the share price of Apple will be next week. And the neat thing about it is people can do it very cheaply. Uh, the fees are really low. And whereas today it costs you millions of dollars to create a new derivative contract on Augur, it's only a few dollars. And then, so kind of the other thing I do is I'm co-manager of um, the ICO fund at, at Pantera Capital. And what we do there is we invest in things like infrastructure and cool decentralized <laughs> applications, typically built on top of, top of Ethereum that are kind of doing crowd sales uh, or selling their tokens to the public. Um, and so there we kind of, you know, invest in those sorts of projects, um, typically before the actual public sale. That way we can kind of help them along and guide them along with, with kind of navigating this space. And then the, the third thing is I also have an angel syndicate. And that's kind of, those are the things I do. So how'd you get into blockchain? So the way I kind of got involved was in 2011, there was this blog post about Bitcoin, uh, sorry, a forum post, and it was entitled of, of it was earn free money with your graphics card. And I thought that seemed you know, too good to be true. Uh, but six weeks later, it was still the top post of this forum I used to go to called overclock.net. And so kind of what I ended up doing is I ended up starting mining Bitcoin, um, read the white paper, thought it was really cool that there was this decentralized uh, money that the monetary supply wasn't controlled by government. It wasn't arbitrary. It was very simply codified. And then that's, that's kind of how I initially got involved. I didn't really do a whole lot with it again until uh, 2013 when I started making a Bitcoin point of sale system. Basically, the idea being you can pay with Bitcoin in stores. The problem with that is there's great incentive for the merchant because it cuts out Visa and MasterCard's fees. Um, but for the consumer, there's no, dis- there's no disincentive to using Visa or MasterCard. You, you can get 3% cash back using those, but you don't really benefit from using Bitcoin as a, as a payment method. So for that reason, I kind of ended up shelving the project and doing a complete 180 and, and starting Augur, which is purely synthetic, doesn't involve the real world very much at all. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look into payment platforms, the the merchant gets screwed for all existing credit card type. Yeah, you, you could almost call it credit card schemes when you look at how bad the how bad the business model is. But then consumers, it's really easy. Is there a easy way to start bringing cryptocurrency into that? Well, I mean, I think if you were going to, you know, if you were going to do that today, I think there's so it's a two-sided marketplace. You know, it, it's great for if you can convince the merchant that they're saving, you know. Most of these, most of these retail stores, their margins are only a few percent. So if they're saving 3% on Visa and MasterCard, they're doubling their margins almost. 
Um, so for them, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. The problem is the other side of the equation of how do you get consumers involved? And I think the solution to that is, is um, twofold. One is consumers don't want to use Bitcoin or, or Ether or whatever because it's volatile. While your money may be worth you know, twice as much in a year, it could also be worth half as much. So I think one answer to that is stable cryptocurrencies. So getting cryptocurrencies that are you know, relatively stable or pegged to assets like the dollar or the pound. And then I think the other answer to it is um, there needs to be some incentive for consumers to use it. So with credit cards, you get a you know, bit, bit of cash back. You might need to do the same thing to encourage people to use crypto. You know, it'll be interesting. I've seen some. I've seen some models pop up now for transferring money, where it'll transfer. You can send money. It'll switch over to cryptocurrency. It'll switch back either Ethereum or block uh, Bitcoin. But you could probably do that with a credit card, where someone pays for a transaction. It's going to cost X. They get paid with Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes to the merchant. It gets automatically converted. Normally, it's three percent on the the card transaction fees. Half of that you cut off for the merchant to save them money, and then half of it goes to consumer. Then you could build your model very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think the the biggest challenge of that is just getting it so it's stable from the consumer side too. If it's fast enough, it doesn't matter if it's stable though. But um, uh, where do where do you see the market going on the cryptocurrency side of things, the ICO side of things? They've made a swarm in in the news in the last few months. So I mean, I think if you look at that market, basically tons of projects are kind of coming out and in launching new sort of protocols and applications on top of Ethereum. Where I kind of see it actually going over the next few years is of those, like any sort of new market, market, you know, 95% of them, 97% of them are, are not very interesting and not really that useful. But there is this really strong, you know, 3 to 5% that is super, super cool and will make up for the fact that 97% of it is useless. It's, just, it's the same thing you saw with the, you know, dot-com boom or, or when people started building the first things on top of the internet. Most things aren't interesting, but, but the things that are are very, very cool. And some of those things are platforms like Augur, which are kind of centralized derivatives platforms, letting people speculate on things that they can't do very well today. And then also you know, decentralized gambling. So things like Funfair, which is basically a decentralized casino on top of Ethereum. Um, there's people working on decentralized poker on top of Ethereum, uh, projects like Virtue Poker, Cypher Poker. And there's also kind of this infrastructure layer projects that are working on things like decentralized exchange, which is going to be very powerful because over the next few years, I think you'll start to see more and more assets tokenized. A great example of this is there's a project called Mecenas, which is trying to tokenize art. So if you think of art, you ask people, you know, why did you buy uh, this painting? 80% of them will actually tell you it's for investment purposes. The reason they bought the painting isn't so much because they wanted to look at it because they think it's, you know, a beautiful piece of artwork, but rather because they're trying to invest their money in art as a different asset class. And so if you think of it that way, the barrier to entry to investing in art is pretty high. To buy, you know, investment class art, which is typically art by, you know, it's like called, quote unquote, old masters. So, you know, art that's a few hundred years old, uh, you're paying, um, you know, at least $10 million a piece. And so the idea here would be tokenize that artwork and make it so people can buy a fraction of it. Um, that way, you've basically done two things. You've democratized access to the art market, and then you've also made it liquid. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge trend going forward is making asset classes that are historically illiquid and making them liquid. Uh, so anything from artwork to real estate. Yeah, I know there's a big real estate company doing, is it Redfin that is letting you own parts of a home and mortgage out the rest of it? I know that's, I, I don't know if the company name is right, but they've been turning up a storm in terms of letting people, let's say like you're going to get a second mortgage on your home. What if you get a second mortgage on half of your home? 
that that kind of deal. So are you are you categorizing the ICO market, the tar- the token movement, in that in that vein? So I haven't heard of that company. That sounds super interesting, though. I'd love to love to check that out more. But um, yeah, I can see things like that happening, um, and also things like especially with like commercial real estate, where you know you can buy if you if you want to buy a piece of commercial real estate, and it costs you fifteen twenty million dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the building. And right now, it's not really liquid. Your best option is to find another buyer who, who you know has that much money is willing to buy the building. But you know, if you look at financial markets historically, two things happen when you increase liquidity. One is access gets democratized, and two is if you increase liquidity, it's actually a better deal for the person who owns the building as well because prices go up. And the reason is um, when you have illiquid assets, you're paying and you're paying. Uh, um, you're basically they're they're cheaper because they're illiquid. And so when asset when an asset is liquid, uh, you're paying a liquidity premium. The idea that you can sell it, you know, pretty much whenever you want. So it's actually like good for for both sides of the equation: person who owns the property and the person who isn't super rich but wants to buy a tiny piece of it. So let's steer this back to angel investing now. How does cryptocurrency fit into the traditional investment role? So there's a lot of different things. There's currencies. There's platforms built on top of currencies. There's tokens. What do what do angel investors need to know about? blockchain, about Bitcoin, about Ethereum to, to make a good bet on the future? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you think, you know, if you, the way I kind of view it is if you think about what kind of asset classes are out there, there's, you know, precious metals, which angel investors don't really involve themselves with uh, most of the time. There's, you know, real estate, same thing. There's, you know, bonds, which angel investors do, but in a very kind of weird way, it's mostly more like equity. And the final kind of category is equity, right? And historically, angel investors have primar- primarily invested in equity or, or things that convert to equity. But I think with, with cryptocurrencies, there's kind of a new asset class. And it doesn't really look quite like any of the other ones. And it's unique because its returns aren't really very correlated to those other asset classes. So as an angel investor, if you're, not, you're looking to diversify a bit, um, it might make sense to add a bit of crypto to your portfolio, basically because it's not correlated to the other assets you're buying. And then, you know, as far as kind of looking at the space and where it's going, I think right now it's basically in the kind of dial-up phase. So if you think about Ethereum or even Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin has, you know, seven transactions or so a second. Ethereum has about 10 to actually scale and get this stuff to be used, you know, as, as a worldwide financial marketplace. We really kind of need 50,000 transactions per second or so. And if you compare that to the internet, that means we're, you know, in the dial-up stage or even slightly pre-dial-up. So the sort of things that I'm kind of bullish about are core infrastructure, things that are platforms that are building things that will make it so um, this whole ecosystem is better over the next couple of years. So things like decentralized exchanges, also projects that are looking to kind of help scale the ecosystem. Um, there's a project called Polkadot, which is basically making these things called parachains, which in a nutshell kind of allow you to scale platforms like Ethereum in a, in a bit of a different way where you can do more transactions a second um, while still maintaining a good amount of security. And then also, of course, applications. You know, right now there aren't a huge amount of applications on these, these protocols because they need to scale a bit more first. Um, but over the next few years, I think that's going to be something that's really big. So the kind of categories of applications I'm most excited about are things where things where you take a piece of the existing financial ecosystem that's pretty broken or pretty expensive or that you don't have access to and you enable it using the blockchain. Um, so that's things, you know, like, you know, enabling speculation on certain types of derivatives that you can't speculate on today or, you know, making e-liquid asset classes liquid and enabling people who don't have tens of millions of dollars to actually buy them and 
and participate in the upside of those assets that they traditionally wouldn't have had access to. Those sorts of things. And then also kind of, there's also the more kind of, you know, fun, less serious side of things, what there will be a lot of, a lot of very popular applications there as well. Uh, things like decentralized casinos and, you know, decentralized poker. Poker has a pretty similar problem to what financial markets have, which is that if you think about it, most poker sites, there's no like central poker site you can go to that has all the liquidity and, and has the, all the matches. You have to go to a bunch of disparate ones. And the reason is you have to basically trust them not to steal your money, uh, trust them not to get shut down. And then it also has this problem of you're paying pretty high fees to them. So that's another problem that's while not as interesting or, or as you know, world-changing as the problems of, of tokenizing existing assets, it's still kind of a pro- fun problem that blockchain solves. Interesting. If you had to make a pick right now, Ethereum or uh, Bitcoin, someone else, who's going to win? So I think for the platform that's the layer um, that almost every application is building on top of, I, I definitely think it's going to be Ethereum. You know, I, I started building Augur on Bitcoin. It took me two months to get to a certain point. Tried to do what I did in two months on Ethereum. I was able to do it in one day. So it's just, it's just so much faster to build on. And if you look at all these applications, every, every project that I see in this space, I haven't seen a single one come across my desk that's being built on Bitcoin today, um, whereas almost all of them are being built on, on Ethereum. It's interesting. Peter Thiel, Thiel has a theory. You shouldn't be the first to do something. You should be the last. So is that, is that your thought? Ethereum's the last or is something around the corner, something we haven't heard about yet going to, going to uptake? Well, so the one thing that could up, you know, kind of surpass Ethereum right now is, is if someone somehow came out with something that was just as good as Ethereum, except it scaled, you know, uh, a thousand times better. I think that's extremely improbable because in my opinion, the best people in the world at scaling are kind of working on that on Ethereum already. So that would be a very black swan t- style of event. But I think it's pretty unlikely. So yeah, I think, I think Ethereum is probably here to stay. And then and if you look at Ethereum versus Bitcoin, Ethereum truly was like a 10x or more improvement over Bitcoin because with Bitcoin, you could send your money around, but you couldn't do anything programmatically with it. And Ethereum kind of enabled that. And yeah, I definitely agree with, with that, that phrase by Teal about kind of being the last and best to market is, is way better than, than the first to market advantage. If you look at, you know, like, like almost all the most successful companies in Valley, none of them were first to market. Facebook wasn't first to market. Google wasn't first to market. Apple wasn't first to market uh, with, with even like the personal computer. There were some kind of more janky hobbyist versions that came about first. But since their product was so much better than everyone else's, um, it's kind of what enabled them to win. To be fair, although in Apple's perspective, I would say they might be on the downturn at this point. We'll see, what, we'll see where the future holds. That's my prediction. But um, I see, I've seen you've gotten a lot into the crowd equity space. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how that plays a role into what you look at as investments, how you source DAs? Yes, I mean, I, I do invest a lot into like, you know, products on platforms like WeFunder or, um, or even like, you know, other Angelus syndicates. Basically, kind of the way, you know, if there's a deal that has an interesting price and the, the product or platform or whatever they're building is super, super interesting and something that should exist but doesn't right now. You know, it's, it's something I'm, I'm happy to invest in, providing that the team looks like they can execute on it. And I think, you know, a few years ago, actually, in my opinion, the, the investing space is a bit less interesting. I wasn't seeing as many good deals. But now, for whatever reason, either if it's just more connections or, or I'm just paying attention more, there seem to be a lot of really interesting deals these days. Also, a lot more money, a lot more entrepreneurs. How'd you get into investing? Well, so when I was really, you know, really young in middle school, I, I started kind of betting on the horse races and I made, um, you know, linear models where uh, I basically just use a pen and paper and, and 
input this data in and, and predict, you know, which horse would win. So I kind of started with, you know, 20 bucks that I got from like birthday money one year, kind of made that into a few thousand dollars and then kind of decided that I should do something more responsible by investing in the stock market, which at that time was a bad idea because it was 2008, just oh. before the, the crash. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I first got started in investing and, and been interested in it ever since. So you've made quite a few investments in the past just based off of your angel record. Did you have an exit out there? So see, I mean, I think the most recent thing that's, that's had an exit would be um, Zero X, which is a deal I did through the syndicate, but not on AngelList. And that was only because it was an obscure kind of token deal. Did that like kind of earlier, much earlier this year. And, you know, they, they, AngelList wanted to invest their funds, but wasn't able to because it was a token deal. Now AngelList can handle those sorts of deals, but they couldn't back then. Anyway, long story short, that deal is around, it's around a 70x return for the, for the people who bought into that one. So I think that's the most kind of recent exit. I just, I just kind of threw that out a few days ago because it just went publicly traded, tradable. Nice. How do, you, how do you source deals? What's your deal flow look like? What's your, what's your work look like? How's, how are things happening? Yeah, so for me, you know, the two main things I focus on, on now are kind of helping with the architectural stuff on Augur and then you know, dealing with ICO and crypto deals with the Pantera funds. For the ICO and crypto deals, they typically come from you know, a few sources. One is they just email us at Pantera because they've heard of the firm because it's the longest running firm in the blockchain space. Two is they just kind of email me because they see my Augur email and just email me there. And that's another way you kind of get a lot of deals. And then three is kind of people just like, people will just kind of send them to me on whether it's Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, asking for advice. And then that's kind of how, how we see a lot of our deals. On the angel investing side, you know, I kind of, my girlfriend actually kind of manages most of the syndicate stuff now. And so it's a deal flow has actually kind of increased since she started doing that. Uh, she sees tons of deals now. I think a lot of them do to her, her network. She went to Berkeley, whereas I kind of dropped out and, <laughs> and didn't, didn't really have a uh, good school very long. Dropped out um, out of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I did. Uh, was able to kind of get a head start in the, in the blockchain space by doing that. But yeah, that's kind of where the deals come from. They come from all over the place. Nowhere that you'd... Like, there's no like one place where you'd say, oh, I expect a bunch of deals to come through here and the mall to be good. But, you know, like anything else, 90% of what you see is, is kind of junk, but the, the rest that's there is pretty cool. It's like, um, you know, another term for an angel investor is like a dumpster diver. That's basically what you're doing is you're searching through a bunch of junk trying to find the, the gems. Absolutely. And it's interesting. If you look at your career, a, a lot of entrepreneurs say scratch your own itch. A lot of them lie about the fact that they scratch their itch later on when they're telling this is success story. But you started out gambling on horse races when you were in middle school. And it sure as hell sounds like Alger's dealing with some pretty, some pretty interesting things. Have you always been into prediction, gambling, forecasting? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, ever since I kind of started doing that in middle school, middle school then I kind of really got into investing. And I think any, any sort of investing is, is basically just about, you know, making a prediction that's the best educated guess you can make with the data you have and then kind of acting on that, whether that's, you know, buying and selling a stock or, you know, even purchasing a piece of artwork, which I haven't, don't have any experience in. But um, I think it's all kind of, it's all kind of intertwined and, and very related in the, in the sort of problem sets, the problems, you know, solving skills you need to do that are very kind of similar. And so it's always kind of interested me on, on all angles in that. Anything from Augur to, you know, betting on a horse race, which most people would consider to be gambling and, and 
not scale based. And I would argue that, that you can actually get a pretty decent edge if you're, if you're, you know, doing it accurately. If you look at kind of the history of financial markets, the way they kind of started is every new financial market, every new asset class, people have said, that's just gambling. It's, it's not actually, you know, investing. Um, but then, you know, a decade or so passes and then people say, oh, that's, that's actually just investing. It's not gambling. And, and that's happened with anything from when the equities markets first started to the bonds markets to more recent stuff like, you know, credit fault swaps. When those first came out, everyone said it's just straight up gambling, but there are actually valid reasons to use them. Um, and I think it's like anything else. So that's, that's kind of why, why financial markets interest me so much. Interesting. When you look at founders, do you look at primarily ones like you? How do you deal with ones that have a slightly different mindset? What do you mean by, by a different mindset? Well, it sounds like you're very technical focused. You're very future focused and scratching your own itch. What, uh, there's, there's a lot of different types of entrepreneurs. You can be, you can be, uh, whatever the hell, but left brain, right brains. You can be outgoing. Um, I can't think of the words right now in, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I know what you mean now. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, when, when looking at a, a company and, and the founders, it's really not as much, as much about, you know, like, oh, does the person think like me or whatever, but more just about, um, do I think they can then they can execute on this project? And, you know, another really kind of important factor of the equation is, you know, you mentioned scratching your own itch. I think that's actually super important. So basically the, the thing is, if you're not, um, if the reason you're passionate about the problem is just because you just kind of see an opportunity and, and think it's a hot space and a way to make money, but, but you're not like deeply at your core passionate about the problem you're solving, um, I think it's much harder to succeed than if like the problem you're solving like would really make even your own life substantially better by solving that problem. And so I think, you know, the, the sort of entrepreneurs I like to look for are people who really truly are kind of, you know, I guess in your words, scratching their own itch or, or solving a problem that has somehow impacted them in a certain way where they would actually really be really happy if, if they solved that problem. Like for me, you know, with, with Augur, the problem is there's stuff I want to speculate on where A, the markets have trade limits that are pretty low, like $1,000. And I'd like to be able to trade more than that. Or B, I can't speculate on, the, on it at all. So it sounds like a problem that I've kind of just had and noticed. And millions and millions of other people around the world have that problem. And so I think for any long story, long story short, for any entrepreneur, I think they should kind of have that same sort of kind of core reason they want to have this problem solved, um, as opposed to just being they think it's a good opportunity. So I think what's going to keep you going, even at like the lowest points or where things are the most most difficult, is when like you really want to see that problem solved beyond just for the sake of monetary gains from doing it. Hence, why you're not still investing in horse races. So I want to jump into a lightning round. Sound good, Joey? And this is basically just some rapid fire questions. And don't worry, we're not going to ask anything about a book. One, what's your first deal? First deal, we'll see. First angel deal I did was Numerai. So it was a quant hedge fund that that uses uh, the crowd to submit their predictions to it. Interesting. I heard a a good interview with them a little while back. It sounded like a very cool model. What's the worst worst deal you've ever done? Let's see. What is the worst deal I've ever done? Um... I'd say I probably don't know yet. <laughs> you know, I, I only I only kind of really started doing angel investing a few years ago, and so kind of this this stuff nothing nothing's catastrophically failed yet. But but you know, of course, I'm sure something will. I just I don't know what it is yet. I'll probably need to change that to biggest mistake you ever made because then that's kind of a dick question when you're throwing someone under the bus. Number three, money or mission? Mission. But also on that on that last question, so biggest mistake I ever made. The biggest mistakes always kind of fall under under the category of leaving vast amounts of money on the table. 
yeah, that's kind of how I sum it up. Where'd you leave a bunch of money on the table? So, you know, classic examples are like, you know, putting a small amount into a deal that, that you were definitely confident on and should have put it a lot more into. So changing your deal size arbitrarily, that's a good way to leave money on the table. And then I think another, another good way to leave money on the table is kind of selling something too early. I made that mistake a couple times early on. And then uh, now, now kind of my strategy is if you have something that's up a, a whole lot, you know, sell enough to cover back the initial investment and maybe a couple X and then let the rest ride. Hmm, smart strategy. YC Techstars, AngelPad, or somebody else? Let's see. If, it, if it's, you know, if it has to be a, a sort of kind of accelerator thing, YC. But for companies overall, I'd say somebody else. Just somebody, you know, who, who started it in their garage or whatever, didn't go through an accelerator. Typically seem to be more interesting to me. I don't know why. I don't have a good reason. Probably because the valuations are a little less blown up as well. Five, who's the best entrepreneur in tech today? I'd say Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Interesting. Wow. Basically, because he, he really kind of understands intuitively well how to enter a space and, and just basically kind of conquer it. Um, like every space he's kind of entered with Amazon, he's done a really good job of just kind of owning that space. And so he, he knows what he's good at, knows what he's not good at, and, and is able to execute really well. And I think, um, you know, he, way more than, than good ideas, execution matters a lot. And, and he's one of the best, best people at execution I've ever seen. And they're just getting better at better at throwing around that 800 pound gorilla. So one last question, where do you see, where, make a big, big, bold prediction, something that you see happening, not a lot of people would agree with. I think, so, you know, I think, I think like 10 years from now, when you're a company and, and you're going to kind of, you know, IPO, I think you're going to have two options. One is you're going to be able to IPO, you know, on like NYSE, NASDAQ, whatever. And that's going to be primarily U.S. investors because it's hard for, say, a Chinese person to buy into a U.S. IPO. However, the other option will be you'll be able to IPO on a global platform on a blockchain like, say, Ethereum, where you have a global investor base. And, you know, the question is, well, which, which would most companies take? I think, I think it makes a lot more sense to take the Ethereum option because it's a global investor base. So you're not just you're getting a better price for yourself and your shareholders and you're getting better kind of basically the more people own your stock um, when it's publicly traded kind of the better for word of mouth and, and people knowing about your company. So I think that's something that most people don't really think is going to happen, but I think it's definitely going to happen. So, so to ante that up a little bit, crypto exchanges are going to kill the current stock exchange model. They won't kill it, but they'll make a huge dent in it. Okay. Good enough. Good enough. Okay, Joey, every time when I interview someone, I like to ask, is there anything that we didn't cover you think we should have covered? Something really important for investors, startups, VCs that you would want to talk about? I don't think so. I think, I think we covered a pretty good amount. Awesome. Well, then, thanks so much for coming on the program today, Joey. Where can people find out more about you, about what you're working on, and hopefully help out? Yeah. So if you want to contact me about you know, the Pantera stuff, um, that's joey at panteracapital.com. If you want to you know, talk about Augur, joey at augur.net, or just join our Slack at augur.net. It's public. You can ask any sort of questions you want in there. Um, and if it's you know about syndicate or kind of angel investing stuff just ping me on angelist and of course we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes guys thanks for coming on joey it's been interesting it's been quite a walk into the world of cryptocurrency wish you wish you all the best thanks thanks for having me thanks for tuning in guys and we'll talk to you again next week thanks for listening to the syndicate the podcast where angel investors and vcs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem 
We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.